frenemy is defined as a person with whom one is friendly, despite having a fundamental dislike or even a rivalry. Any of you have a frenemy? You know, maybe it's a, a guy at work or a girl on the team that you can think of that somehow always seems to give you com uh, compliments that are, well, backhanded. Or maybe they just somehow always seem to be there right when you're struggling and well, they have some comment that just brings you down. Maybe it's a guy you can think of that you actually enjoy spending time with. You think it's cool to hang out with him. Then he always seems to crack jokes at your expense and you're like, why am I spending time with this guy? Maybe it's a lady you think is so sweet, so nice, and you just love being around her. But then when you're not around her, she makes choices that, well, maybe you wouldn't. Any of you have a friend of me? I hope you don't. I hope that you have friends and relationships with people that are genuine, that are real. And I hope that in those friendships, you experience the selflessness of Christ. You experience the unconditionality of God's love for you. I hope you experience from your friends the encouragement that you get from the Holy Spirit. In short, I hope you have friends that make you a better Christian. But when I asked the question, do you, do you have any frenemies, I saw more than one head go like this. I don't think it's a stretch to think that there's people in our lives that we call friends, but maybe they're more foe than friend. But what if that person was God? What if God was your frenemy? That was Martin Luther's experience pre-Reformation. Martin Luther believed in God. Martin Luther loved God and he wanted to be loved by God, but perhaps no better word describes his relationship with God than frenemy. You see, he had a fundamental dislike for the one he called God the Father. In fact, frenemy might be too light of a word because he is on record saying he hated God. Why is that? Well, Martin Luther read his Bible. And he read passages like the one that we read earlier, Romans chapter one, where he read that for in the gospel, a righteousness, the righteousness of God is being revealed. And what did the righteousness of God mean? Well, to Martin Luther, he stepped back and he interpreted the righteousness of God. He was taught that the righteousness of God was this. God is holy. God is just. God is righteous. And therefore, the holy, righteous, and just God punishes unholy and unrighteous sinners. And Martin Luther knew it. He knew despite the fact that he was a monk, despite the fact that he prayed often, did tons of pious work, confessed his sins hours at a time, well, he knew he was more sinner than saint and righteousness was just something that he did not have. He said every time he came across this phrase in Romans, every time he came across this phrase in scripture, that he was terrified. It was as though lightning struck his heart. He knew that before God, God was not his friend, but the immortal God was damning him to the immortal flames of hell. So he was afraid. But then there was that one night, that one night that was unlike most nights, but the events of that night changed 
the entire world. You know, Martin Luther was reading Romans. He was reading Romans chapter 1, and he was in his monastery. He was up in a tower, and this, this story has come to be known as Luther's Tower Experience. Because by the grace of God, he didn't just stop reading at this part of Romans. In fact, he moved on and led by the Spirit, he understood what came at the end of Romans chapter 1, verse 17. He understood that a, a certain quote at the end of Romans chapter 1, verse 17, that is actually quoted three times throughout the New Testament and drawn from the Old Testament, taken from the very lips of God to his people, is what makes all the difference. This is what he read. He read that for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. The righteous will live by faith. What Luther discovered was that the righteousness of God was not the wrath of God. The righteousness of God was not the judgment of God. The righteousness of God was not God issuing bad news to you, but it was good news. The righteousness of God was not him giving a curse to you, but the righteousness of God is him bestowing a blessing on your entire life. The righteousness of God is a verdict, a pronounced verdict in God's courtroom of life as you stand before him that you are not a damned sinner, but you are saint because you have been washed in the holy blood of Jesus Christ. The righteousness of God is this. It is God's power in you, working through you, brought to you on behalf of Jesus Christ, your Savior. In short, the righteousness of God is not God's angry disposition towards you. It's Christ's imposition of himself in you. This is the righteousness of God. It is Christ Jesus giving his righteousness to you. Let that sink in as you listen to these words again. For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So here's a million dollar question. If righteousness is something that is by faith from first to last, and the righteous will live by faith, how do you get faith? If you want righteousness, if you want to be righteous before God, how is it that you get faith? Because this saying, the righteousness of God and the righteousness of God is yours and the righteous will live by faith is not just a theologian's thought from a tower. It's the catalyst of Christian life. It is the motivator of men who want to be men after God's own heart. It's the inspiration for women who want Christ's righteousness to be their beauty that adorns them. So how do you get faith? Or maybe the better question is, the first question is, do you need more faith? Or are you doing all right? You got faith. It's good enough. Maybe that's too obvious. 
Because maybe you know what it's like to be in life's moments where you don't have faith or you don't have as much faith as you'd like. Maybe it's as simple as sitting at the kitchen table looking over your finances and wondering how those questions about the future are going to be answered. Maybe you know what it's like to not have as much faith as you'd like because you've been in those moments where you're just not happy with your real relationship status. You're unhappily single or unhappily married, and you want to know what to do to change the status quo. Maybe you know what it's like to not have as much faith as you want because your son, your daughter, asked you a question about the faith, and you just don't have the answer. Maybe you know what it's like not to have faith because you've been tempted to pour another drink, click another link, tell another lie, and inside you just feel like, well, you want to die because you don't want to do this anymore. So maybe that is a good question. How do you get faith? Some of you are on the edge of your seat jumping because you were here last week and you know the answer to that. We looked at Romans chapter 10, verse 17, which says, faith comes from hearing the message and the message is heard through the word of Christ. We wrapped up last week by talking about how this is what the Holy Spirit does. He works faith in the heart of women and men, sons and daughters of God, not by whispering in the wind, not by conjuring up their feelings to make them feel the Spirit, but the Holy Spirit works through the Word of God. So what I want to do today is look at two ways, two tools, if you will, that our God uses to bring faith to you. Two tools that our Holy Spirit uses uh, to work through the Word to bring you faith. Those tools are called the sacraments. And the word sacrament, well, guess what? It's not in the Bible. But that word that the historic Christian church has used to describe sacred acts, sacraments, are words that are found in the Bible. Here are the sacraments. You know them. It's baptism and it's the Lord's Supper. It's communion. And what is a sacrament? If you're following along on the worship guide, you can write these down. But a sacrament is made up of these three things. First, it is instituted by Christ. That's what a sacrament is. It is something, a rite, a ritual, a thing that Christ instituted, an action that he said, do it. But furthermore, uh, the sacraments have with them earthly elements, bread, water, and wine. And it's not these earthly elements that have power, but it's the fact that these earthly elements are combined with the command of God, the word of God, and a word of promise, where God promises that he will give you faith and he will give you forgiveness. This is a sacrament. These are the sacraments. The first is the Lord's Supper, right? Um, that the night before Jesus died, he instituted communion when he said, do this in remembrance of me. He gave the promise when he said, this is my body. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for you for what? The forgiveness of all your sins. He defined the elements, the bread and the wine. And he said, this really promises you life, forgiveness, and faith in me. Baptism happened at our Lord's ascension when he said, go, 
go and make disciples of all nations by baptizing them. All of scripture, the New Testament talks about baptism being this, the application of the water combined with the word, the word of promise that believe and baptize and you will be saved. Mark chapter 16, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. The apostle Peter in Acts, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. These are the sacraments. And there could be a hundred sermons on baptism. There could be a hundred sermons on the Lord's Supper. There could be a lot of questions about the sacraments. Why do we do communion the way we do it? Why do we do communion when we do it? Why do we baptize when we baptize? Why do we use this bowl instead of a tank to baptize? A lot of questions about baptism. And it's important to know those things. It's important to know what the sacraments are, where in scripture God gives us the sacraments, where the promises of faith and forgiveness are found. But can I tell you the most important thing that you need to know about the sacraments? If you leave just one thing today, I want you to know this, that the sacraments are Christ coming to you. It's God serving you. Put it this way, it is God driving a Mack truck of his grace and forgiveness down a one-way street straight into you. It's not about you driving up to him. It's about God coming to you through, well, rather ordinary things. The word, some water, some wine, and some wheat that's made into bread. You want to know how you get faith? It's this. It's through the holy ordinary, plain, ordinary things the word, the spoken and written word, the wine, the water, and the bread. It's through the holy ordinary that you receive God's extraordinary gifts of faith and forgiveness. That's it. That's how you get faith. That's the most important thing that you need to know about the sacraments. But can I tell you something? That's also the most difficult thing to remember about the sacraments. Why? Well, because people don't like to be basic. No one likes to be boring. Our culture has this prevailing idea that common things produce common results, right? Extraordinary things produce extraordinary results, right? Basic is boring. Modest is, well, monotonous. But bigger is better. Extraordinary is exciting. Extra is more enticing. This is good, right? Well, what happens then is ordinary gets overlooked. It actually happened in a church that was planted a few years back. This church started and it had a pastor who was amazing. Dude was a little rough around the edges, sometimes a little forthright, but he was an amazing preacher because over and over again, he clearly pointed people to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Through baptism, many people came to faith. Through his preaching of the word of God, many people came to faith and were strengthened in their faith. As this pastor administered the sacraments, so many people got to know the forgiveness of their God, got to grow in their faith. And then this pastor took a call. Actually, he took a job to go start a church elsewhere. And people thought, this is good and all, um, but I think we can do better. I think we can jazz things up just a little bit more. 
And so they established special Sundays and special services that really let people feel righteous, really let people know that they were the righteous ones. They said that they could really understand uh, the substance of their faith by their service to others. They started fasting and praying lots because then they would feel as though their faith was getting strengthened. And then the word got back to their first pastor. And he wasn't happy. He sat down at his computer and he, he wrote up a little bit of a letter to him. Can I read it to you? I'm just going to read a few lines. Here's what he said. He said, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Christ Jesus was clearly proclaimed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. You know, the congregation at Galatia, they came to faith the same way everyone comes through faith, through the preaching and the teaching of the word, through baptism and the Lord's Supper. They knew Christ Jesus. They saw him as clearly crucified and risen and ascended for their salvation. But then they had the same question that you and I are looking at today. How do you get faith? How do you get more faith? How are you strengthened in their faith? And after beginning by means of the Spirit, they started to make up man-made ways. And the ordinary was overlooked. Can I show you another church that, well, had the same problem? It's the Christian church pre-Reformation. It was a church that told people that if you want faith, you got to go find some relics, some vestiges of Jesus Christ and his time on this earth. And so people went off to crusades and wars to get relics from the Holy Land, things that were, let's be honest, fake. And as fraudulent as those things were, so were the promise that if you bought them, if you got them, then you'd have faith. People were told if you go on pilgrimages and trips to Rome, then you will be more righteous. So people spent money, people traveled, people climbed stairs and knelt on hundreds of stairs and crossed their hearts and said a little prayer and thought that was giving them faith. People were told that if you want more faith, spend more money on indulgences. If you want to have forgiveness, go to the Lord's Supper, but guess what? For $9.99 and 10 payments of that, you can have a private mass and you will be more forgiven. You will receive forgiveness for you and your family. And what happened? Well, the very church that was given the very tools by God to get faith, well, took those things, took the word and took the sacrament and locked them up. They were gone. But it's not just Christian churches that do that. Individual Christians do it too. Listen, like, Christians today talk a lot about a radical 
Christianity, living a radical Christianity where you wholly and fully submit your life to God. Christians today like to talk a lot about being countercultural, taking the gospel that is opposite to what this world is about and living about that. But you're not being countercultural when you adopt the idea that, well, ordinary things produce ordinary results, and so I can just occasionally go to the Lord's Supper. I can just sometimes, if I feel like it, sit down and spend time with my God in word and prayer. It's not radical Christianity when you bow before the altar of me, myself, and my ideas, or what my mom and dad taught me, or what my church used to teach me about how God gives faith. And you stop bowing before the altar of our God and listen to his word and how he tells you how faith happens. You have a God who says to me, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. But stop coming to me through your made-up ways. Stop coming to me through your man-made ways because you don't get rest like that. You have a God who says, come to me through my word, come to me through my gifts of baptism and the Lord's Supper, and I will give you rest. You want to know how you get faith? It is the holy ordinary. It is through the holy ordinary, plain and simple word, water, bread and wine, that God gives faith. And you experience the extraordinary gifts of God, his faith and forgiveness. So here, as I stand before you today, here is my other encouragement to you. You want to know how you get faith? Obsess over the ordinary. Obsess over those plain, common, simple things. That's where you find faith. That's where Christ gives faith. I mean, imagine for a second what your faith would look like if you obsessed over a specific time that you would spend time with your God in prayer. Imagine if you woke up every day and your first thought, you obsessed about your first thought being your baptism. And if you can't remember your baptism, you went to the words that reminded you what happens in your baptism, that there you were cleansed by the washing with water through the word, presented by Christ to God as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Imagine what would happen if you obsessed about opportunities to take the Lord's Supper? Imagine what would happen if you obsessed over this meal and you broke down doors to get to your pastor and say, give me that meal. Give me the Lord's Supper. Imagine if you obsessed about the Lord's Supper in such a way that you thought that Jesus Christ, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, was, oh, really present. Oh, he really always is. Our culture is a little obsessed with celebrity worship, right? Uh, just last week, a watch, a cheap watch that was worn by Robin Williams on the set of Dead Poets Society went for $35,000 at an auction. A tissue that Scarlett Johansson blew her nose into went for $5,500 on eBay. I don't know why. Have people stand in line to get close to celebrities or pay a ton of money to see their favorite celebrity perform. And there might be a variety of reasons, and I'm sure there's actually some pretty wholesome reasons why that is. But I wonder if one of the reasons isn't that 
people are trying to fulfill an innate longing and desire to experience some sort of intimacy with someone who is greater than them. I'm willing to argue that part of the whole celebrity worship that is prevalent in our society isn't all of us just trying to infuse into our lives a moment, even if it's just a moment of time that transcends what's, what's common and ordinary in our lives. If we're just trying to infuse into our lives a little bit of purpose as we see them fulfilling their purpose. If we like to go and gather with people, commune with people who same, have the same adoration for someone because, well, we're searching for that communal feeling, that community. Listen, you have a God who is greater than. You have a God who is greater than you, a God who wants nothing more than to dine with you and give you an intimacy that this world cannot provide. You have a God who is just wanting to be with you and infuse transcendence and purpose and meaning into your life like this world does not know. Do not miss this God just, become, just because he comes in ordinary, small, and seemingly humdrum pa uh, packages. You have a great God, and you have a great God who comes to you in word, who comes to you through the Lord's Supper, who comes to you through baptism. And I know sometimes when you take the Lord's Supper, you take a little wafer of bread and a little shot of wine, and you think to yourself, that's it. But that is not just it, because when you consume that bread, you are consuming your Savior who consumed all of your sin. When you take that sip of wine, the Most High God is sitting on the throne of your heart. And in that meal, he is making you one with him just as he is one with you. And he reminds you who you are. You are his son, and he made you that way. You are his daughter, and he made you that way through your baptism. Don't miss baptism just because it's this simple thing. It's, it's water with the word. How many of you have ever listened to a favorite song of yours and gotten the lyrics confused. Maybe you're listening to Jimi Hendrix and you think that when he says, excuse me while I kiss the sky, you heard, excuse me while I kiss this guy. Or maybe it's listening to Taylor Swift and on blank spaces when she says, uh, I got a long list of ex-lovers, you think you heard, I get along with Starbucks lovers. That ever happen? Don't let it happen with baptism. In God's word, he says to you, baptism now saves you. Don't get it twisted. Don't think just because it's so simple that, oh, baptism represents something that I'm doing for God. When God comes to you and on top of the holy mountain, God sang that beautiful song, go and make disciples of all nations by baptizing them. Don't get it twisted that somehow baptism is something that happens after we've proselytized, doctrinized, and taught disciples. Then they show their commitment to God by baptizing them. Don't think that when our God comes and sings the Christ-centered chorale in Ephesians chapter 5, that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by washing the, with the washing of water through the word, that somehow baptism is this thing 
that you have done for Christ, that you've sacrificed, that you've shown your commitment to Christ. Oh, in baptism, Christ saves you. And the reason why baptism saves you, the reason why communion works, Ephesians says it pretty well, it's because it's with the word. It's the word of your God. And the word is what makes faith. So let me make it personal. How are you going to get faith? Faith comes from hearing the message. Faith is found in through the holy ordinary. God gives his extraordinary gifts of faith and forgiveness. So how are you going to get it? Once upon a time, there was a, a village, an old village that had an old well in the center of the village. But for years and years and years, that well, it provided life-giving water, crisp, clear, life-giving water to generation after generation. Babies were made well after getting sick because they drank that water. Workers would come in daily from the field and drink that water, and it would revitalize and refresh them. Every day, the villagers would gather around that well, and they would drink, and they would smile. One day a villager came to town wearing some shiny robes and a, and a heavy gold chain and he looked in that well and he said, that's nice, but I can show you water that's colder. He said, that water looks good, but I can show you water that's cleaner. I can show you water that's more crisp and more refreshing than anything you've had to drink. Just let me show you where it is. And though people were skeptical, they liked that idea. Who doesn't, right? And so the young, man packs, young men packed up their things and they traveled with this man. They traveled up over mountains and they traveled up over hills and they came to a plain on top of the mountain and, and the traveler said, this is it. This is where that water is. We just need to pray for it. So they prayed and nothing happened. The men looked up and the traveler said, you know, we just need to sacrifice to God and the water will appear here. And so they sacrificed and they prayed. And as they did all this and felt silly, they just wished. They just wished they were back with their grandparents. They were back with their families and their friends in the village in that place where they knew they could always get the crisp, clear water. I think today we need a story just like that. Because the villagers are us. The water in that well is the water of life that flows from the word of God, that's found in the word and sacraments. And that well, that unattractive, seemingly common well, are God's gifts. It is this old book we call the Bible. It's this seemingly unawesome thing called baptism. It's this common thing called communion. And I know this stuff isn't fancy, but this stuff is the source of your faith. Amen. Amen.